This is Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And just a little bit, we will be joined by NFL legend Malcolm Jenkins, who will talk to us about his new book, What Winners Won't Tell You. And fans of our birds will know him quite well, but we will talk about so much more than just the tackles and touchdowns. We'll talk about his life and the ups and downs. And you, friends, can ask questions. Get them in early because they're already coming in. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. 888-477-9499 is the number to call. Also, you've probably heard it on the news. If you were just listening to the newscast that happened three minutes ago, you heard it. Kevin McCarthy was removed as House Speaker yesterday in a historic vote. We're going to talk with Representative Madeline Dean about what this means for the future of the House. But first, Cherry, I Mm -hmm. have to uh, talk about our Phillies. Yeah, yeah. They opened their playoff campaign yesterday with a 4-1 to win over the Marlins. If they win tonight, they move on to the next round. If they don't, it sets up a decisive winner-take-all game three tomorrow. But that's the future. Let's just celebrate a victory for the Phils. Red October has begun. Yes, it does. And I have to say winner, winner, chicken dinner. For you have to say Phils. that? I have to say it for okay, the Phils. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, I'm really proud of them. And Did you watch... No, I did not. But I did. Um, but I did. I did see the win on Twitter sure. or X, and uh, I, I looked at some of the highlights. So yeah, like you know, Cherry, four to one. Cherry, can I level with you? Yeah. Because our our relationship is built on honesty and, and trust, trust. Yes. As it is with the audience. Yes. I fell asleep. <laughs> you gotta in, like, keep the it real. And, or eighth <laughs> inning. I woke up in the ninth inning because I guess the the crowd got loud again and the TV volume yeah. was blaring. So I did see the final couple outs, but boy, was that a welcome to adulthood moment. I yeah. had. I mean, I don't think I've ever fallen asleep in a baseball game, much less a playoff baseball game. But yeah. I am washed. Yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot yesterday. It was busy. It started you at a, eight. That's yeah, my. You got excuse. a baby. Like it's it's real. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Um. There was some controversy yesterday, but not really, when outfielder Nick Castellanos uh, got to second base during the game, and he appeared to turn back to the Phillies' dugout when he got there and flick them off, which would seem odd, right? But it wasn't a true flick, was it? It was not. It was his ring finger, not his middle finger. Is he newly married or something? (laughs) No, I think he's happily married, but not newly married. It was because uh, that's the ring that you would put like a World Series ring on if they win it all. So he was... So it was misinterpreted by the audience as an obscene gesture. He said, after the game, why would I give the middle finger to my teammates? I love them. Oh, look, look, clearing up those misunderstandings. That's you what know? life's all about. That's what life is all about. Uh, you might have a misunderstanding today at 2.20 p.m. Yes. If you do not take heed to what we are about to tell you, there is going to be a national test of a wireless emergency alert system that is run by FEMA. You will get a message on cell phones, radios, and TVs. It is a test. Yes. Do not overreact. We are warning you now so you can carry with confidence into your afternoon. Yeah, and the message will be displayed in English or Spanish, depending on the language settings of your device. But there, you know, this is a whole emergency system. It's only been used... Uh, about, eight, what, 84,000 times since it's launched uh, about yeah. 11 years ago. And there's five type of alerts that could be used in the future. Presidential alerts, imminent threat alerts, public safety alerts, 
Amber, Amber alerts. alerts and of course opt-in test messaging um, like we'll have. So you can go to ready.gov slash alerts if you want to figure out like what all this means. But 220 today. It is wild that someone somewhere has the power to send something to every device in America. Yeah. It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. Well, th- we, we walk around with these devices in our pockets. No. It just goes to show people can reach us anywhere. But uh, on a serious note, um, Philadelphia police have identified a person of interest in the investigation of the murder of Philadelphia journalist Josh Kruger. This is a difficult story for us. Josh mm-hmm. Kruger was shot and killed in his Point Breeze home Monday. It's unclear why, but there is speculation that it may have been drug or domestic related. But Josh's death made national news because he's a journalist like you and I, mm-hmm. Avi. Uh, he was a freelance journalist most known for covering the LGBTQ plus community, homelessness, marginalized communities. He had been a contributor to WHYY's Billy Penn, the Citizen Philly Weekly, so many other publications. He also worked for the city for a time as well. I knew Josh personally Mm. uh, when I was a reporter for many years. He and I covered a lot of the same criminal justice issues and other um, discrimination issues. And he was recognized as an activist. He was also like pretty open about his personal life. He was known to be HIV positive, openly LGBTQ plus and um, shared his struggles with addiction with the world. Something a lot of us as journalists do. do not do. And now he is gone at just 39 years old. And I'm really hopeful that the police will find whoever did this. But as mentioned, a person of interest has been identified. It's unclear if they're going to be is there a arrest warrant or what's going to happen. But the police are looking for this person. Yeah, I didn't know Josh. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I only knew him through social media interactions. Um, so, you know, I, I feel uncomfortable saying too much about this situation, um, except to say that of course, we're thinking of everyone that he knew and who mm-hmm. he touched and who he impacted. And this has, you know, rocked the whole journalistic community here in Philadelphia and, and also the the civic government community because he worked for the about city, five yeah. years for mm-hmm. the city um, as a as a press liaison. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. Anything else you want to add? Um, you know, we, he did write into the show last week. <laughs> To Studio yeah. Two, yeah, yeah. Um, so he he listened from time to time. So you know, was part of our Studio Two, I guess, family. listenership. Yeah. 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 So um, our condolences to his family and friends and everybody impacted uh, within the community. Yeah. Uh, just want to now round out the news segment. Talk about a, an interesting item we saw in the Washington Post today. Mm. Um, there are a growing number of studies mm. that suggest the way you sequence your meal might impact how it affects you nutritionally. Like you could eat the same three things, but if you eat them in different orders, it could be better for you or worse mm-hmm. for you. And the, this sequencing theory really sets up around the idea that you should eat fiber-rich vegetables, protein, or fat at the start of the meal. Mm-hmm. So don't start with the breadsticks. Start with like the veggies, the meats, the fats, and then work your way to the carbohydrates. And Does the, this make sense to you? This makes, well, I read a book called The Glucose Revolution. <laughs> you, that, you were way that would, I'm ahead of this. You're ahead of the and curve that on proposed this. Go this, ahead, I'll, I'll step That proposed this, and now the study is out supporting what the glucose revolutions um, proposed. But it just goes to show you get set up at the restaurants. 
They're giving you breadsticks, which is like <laughs> whoa, 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 complex, which is simple carbs, we're right? Turning and on then, Olive Garden now, and then you're like starving, okay. and you eat more food. Whereas if All you right. ate the veggies first, you filled up on salad and stuff first, you would probably eat less. Apparently, we've been set up. Apparently, eating vegetables first can cause your body to secrete higher levels of a hormone that is the same hormone that's in these popular weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy. Isn't that interesting? We've been set up. We've been set up. <laughs> You're mad. Ooh. <laughs> I hope this is true because, boy, would that be an easy fix? It would I be. would be happy to I'm eat try. vegetables I, I feel like you should try it. I try it some days. I don't always, you know, yeah. you know, follow it. But, yeah, for sure. So some folks Let's who are also Let's chew on political mad, news. Yeah, some folks who were big mad mm-hmm. yesterday um, resulted in Kevin McCarthy being ousted from the House speakership following a fight in the Republican Party to avert a government shutdown. Now, Republican Matt Gates led the effort to remove McCarthy. He was joined by seven other hardline Republicans and all of the Democrats in a 216 to 210 vote. U.S. Representative Madeline Dean, a Democrat who represents Pennsylvania's 4th District, cast her vote to remove the speaker. And she joins us now. Congresswoman Dean, welcome to Studio 2. Well, thank you, uh, Cherry and Avi. And uh, I'm delighted to join you at Studio 2, especially at this important time uh, for our nation, uh, for the institution of the House. But I wanted to start with uh, just offering my condolences and shock uh, over the shooting death of Josh Kruger. Um, I'm a former professor of writing. I admired Josh's writing. Uh, I admired his bravery, talking about uh, issues that are often so very difficult to talk about personally. Uh, I just admired his courage, his bravery, uh, you know, my family has been touched by addiction uh, and, and uh, blessedly recovery. Um, but what an extraordinary loss uh, for Philadelphia, obviously, for his family uh, and for journalism. For sure. And I mean, uh, we're all still dealing with that. But thank you for those uh, kind words to the community. Um, and, and Congresswoman, uh, you voted uh, to remove Kevin McCarthy uh, from the speaker role. I want you to talk about what went into that decision? Thank you for asking. Uh, It was with a lot of thought. Uh, And um, it was not an easy vote. Uh, But sadly, I believe this was preordained back in January, January the 3rd, when you saw us go through 15 votes uh, in order to come to a speaker. And the only way that uh, Mr. McCarthy was able to come to the speakership was giving away different concessions, uh, giving away values, uh, frankly, uh, that I hold dear uh, for the American people. Uh, So it was preordained, but I knew uh, that this was not a choice of save McCarthy or side with Gates. This was a choice about making sure that the person who is our speaker is led by the truth and reveals his or her integrity. Mr. McCarthy has not shown either of those things. What were the concessions that he made originally that you found so objectionable that you voted um, with all of your Democratic colleagues to remove him? Well, uh, the first one is the absurd rules package. Mm -hmm. Imagine that any one rogue, unhappy person uh, in his conference or in ours as well uh, could call the question. Uh, You saw that play out. Uh, yesterday. In previous Congresses, that was not the rule. You want it to be much more seriously thought about. 
uh, to unseat a speaker, uh, to leave the House uh, with no one at the helm, which is where we stand now at a time when we do not have a full budget, uh, when a time when we need to be funding Ukraine. Uh, so some of those concessions uh, around um, what power he would or would not have. Sadly, his ambition got the better of him uh, and he gave away thing after thing after thing. He also gave away what I think was despicable. You saw us vote on many different amendments uh, and bills uh, that would uh, underfund uh, our military, that would put in language that was bigoted, racist, uh, anti-LGBTQ to, to talk about our friend Josh. Uh, he put in, he allowed those things to come to the floor instead of saying, no, this is not who we are. This is not what we stand for. Uh, so there yeah. were many breaches of promise. Uh, you know, he, he brought us to the brink of the debt ceiling crisis. He allowed his members to do that. It's called a clown car, but it's not funny. There's literally nothing funny about either defaulting or shutting the government down, which we almost did. Literally at the 11th hour, it was Democrats who saved us from a government shutdown. So it's a lot of broken promises, a lot of um, uh, lies, frankly, and a failure to t say the truth. And I wanna play this clip from um, McCarthy at a press conference yesterday. Here's what he had to so say. So I may have lost a vote today, but as I walk out of this chamber, I feel fortunate to have served the American people. I leave the speakership with a sense of pride, accomplishment, and yes, optimism. My goals have not changed. My ability to fight is just in a different form. And so you hear that. He's, he claims that he leaves with optimism. But I want to ask you, uh, how are Democrats feeling right now? And, and what are the opportunities and challenges that are before you with this, with this you know, absence of leadership in that role? Well, I, I want to focus on one word that he used there, a sense of accomplishment. What did he accomplish? He weakened the institution of the House. And, you know, that has been the mm -hmm. M.O. of the former president and those around him. Weaken institutions, weaken Americans' faith in our institutions, whether it is the press, whether it is the Department of Justice, whether it is our free and fair election system. So I can't understand uh, what accomplishments uh, this former, now former failed speaker has racked up. You know that in the last Congress, uh, under Speaker Nancy Pelosi, with the exact same slim margin of, of majority, we were able to accomplish more than any Congress since the 1960s. Infrastructure got that across the finish line after previous Congresses and presidents had tried. The Chips and Science Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, reducing uh, prescription drugs, reducing the cost of insulin for seniors. We were able, you talk about accomplishments, we were able to accomplish so much uh, as Democrats in the majority alongside this president who signed these big bills into law. Uh, so I, I just am baffled by uh, any false notion of accomplishment. Uh, in fact, what happened is he weakened uh, his own institution. Uh, something I really revere and am privileged. And on the Democrat side, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just going to ask you on the Democrat side, you you, you seem like yeah. you were leading right into it. Yeah, th thank you. Um, uh, what I almost wish America could have been in our caucus room as we deliberated with seriousness, with, with a sobriety 
you saw there was no celebration over this disaster uh, of unseating a, of a speaker. Uh, I wish America could see that we had a unity that you could see it as yeah. we were on the floor that is unbreakable for a simple reason. And I was talking to Hakeem Jeffries just uh, in the last hour. And I said, the glue that holds us together is something he said in caucus. We have a unity of purpose that is much stronger than the disunity and disarray you see on the other side because they are not of a single purpose, which is to do something for the betterment of the American people. They're, they are fractured because they are interested in self-promotion. They are interested in ambition. They are interested in breaking things. Uh, so the contrast couldn't be clearer. This is the Republican. Republicans at war with themselves. And I look forward to us getting back there and sober, cooler minds uh, mm. speaking up. Uh, the moderates, I've, I've been appalled. Uh, I, I think often when I'm on the floor uh, or in committees, uh, I think often of Martin Luther King's statement uh, that uh, it is the appalling silence of the so-called good mm. people. You're talking about the moderate. Down. You're talking about the moderate members of the Republican Party. There, that is correct. Where well, are they? Why didn't they stand up to the extremists? Instead, in their silence, they became complicit. We are speaking with uh, U.S. Rep. Madeline Dean, a Democrat representing Pennsylvania's fourth district, about the latest tumult in Washington. You talked about the opposition party there, and you said that they're interested in breaking things. And a lot of people, a lot of observers think that the move to unseat McCarthy will simply lead to more breaking. It will lead to someone who is less committed to compromise and bipartisanship because they will have looked at the example of McCarthy and realized that when he made sort of one deal, it led to his downfall. Um, Aren't you worried that's going to happen here? No, I'm not. Uh, I look forward to, uh, you know, where I stand is we need to find, and and this is a call to the Republicans, a bipartisan path forward. We averted uh, a shutdown of the government because of bipartisanship. People shouldn't, that should not be lost on folks. They got more Democratic votes for the continuing resolution that met the deal that was passed in May. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then they got Republican votes. So um, I I believe they recognize that the extremists are trying to burn it down. Uh, They gave the ability of uh, just a rogue member like Matt Gaetz with no purpose other than personal ambition uh, uh, to tear this thing apart. But uh, Representative Uh, Dean, if if, I'm sorry to jump in, but if personal ambition, as you say, is the driving the animating factor of members of the party, of the Republican Party, then why won't they follow that ambition when they pick whoever they pick to replace uh, former Speaker McCarthy? And why wouldn't that person simply commit to a harder line stance? Because I can't it's hard for me to see how the lesson that they take away here is that bipartisanship helps promote their career. It seems in this case, a small measure of bipartisanship hurts someone's career. Uh, No, I think the hurt was done prior to that. Uh, it is not that uh, we passed a continuing resolution in a bipartisan fashion. He had already fractured his power uh, by saying, th- I'll give you a simple example mm-hmm. of what really revealed uh, what he had done. Uh, you saw that uh, President Zelensky, of course, was in town, was it two weeks ago? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mr. McCarthy said, 
He denied him a joint session of Congress to give us an update of a president at war in Europe. And he also denied him a public meeting with McCarthy. That was pressure uh, to not talk about Ukraine and our support for Ukraine. That is failed leadership. It's also globally dangerous. And uh, so I don't think, to, to your point, who's going to get 218 mm. by bending to these extremists? You're not going to get there. And mm. so who, um, who, what type of speaker, who do you think could do it? Because I know the Democrats have said minority leader Hakeem Jeffries is your pick. But is there even a chance he'll get the votes? And if not, what options do you all have or do you see pushing forward? Well, uh, most of this is on the Republican conference. Uh, they are, you see them at war with themselves. And this has been a long road to this, mm -hmm. this absolute splintering and fracturing and, and a lack of values. What I want in a speaker, my guideposts are someone who is honoring of the truth and is willing to say the truth and somebody who shows his or her integrity in all of our actions. Uh, what if that person? What really if that person was? What if that person? I'm sorry, nominally was a member of the Republican Party, but one of those moderate members that you gestured to earlier. Do you think that person could earn your vote or some votes within your caucus and cobble a coalition in the middle somehow? I don't have a prediction. I'm sorry to tell you that, mm -hmm. Avi. I don't have a prediction. Uh, I will echo what you said. Somebody who lives up to those two uh, guideposts, uh, in my mind, for speaker, is Hakeem Jeffries. When he gives you his word, he stands by it. He is somebody who is wedded to the truth, uh, will not suffer uh, these lies that are so dangerous. I want to put into the mix here, it's not only dangerous for this institution, these lies and, and extreme um, positions, um, but there is a backdrop here of a stoking of political violence uh, that is so very, very dangerous. You've seen the threats to members of Congress. You've seen uh, threats to, imagine, the former president uh, suggesting that the Joint Chiefs chairman uh, should be executed. Um, where are the Republicans to call that out and to say that is beyond the pale? It is un-American. Uh, so, uh, somebody will earn my vote if he or she can demonstrate uh, a weddedness uh, to the truth, uh, to showing daily his or her integrity. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, making sure that we are governing for the people, not for our and, self interest. And, Congresswoman, we only have about a minute or so. Um, besides the speaker conflict, which has sort of captivated everybody because. Of the, of, the, of the situation of the House right now, what is your main focus? Is there any other focus? Can there be any other focus right now? You only have about 30 to 40 seconds. Uh, my focus, uh, of course, we will play out the speakers, but that's process. Uh, we'll get to a speaker. I hope it doesn't take very long, and I hope it is somebody worthy. The two things we have to focus on uh, are fully funding the government, fully funding the government, uh, and uh, making sure we re remain uh, wedded to robust support for Ukraine. Mm. What happens in Ukraine as tens of thousands of war crimes have been committed matters here at home. We should never lose sight of that. That is a democracy, uh, a modern day war in Europe. So it is budgeting here 
and fully funding our government to protect all the people uh, it is funding for Ukraine. And I'll continue working on two of my all pet right. projects. All right. Uh, we do have uh, to leave it there. Uh, that is okay. U.S. Representative Madeline Dean, a Democrat representing Pennsylvania's 4th District. And we thank her for her time from Washington today. Coming up next, we will be talking with former Eagle Malcolm Jenkins. Stick with us on Studio 2. Allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is O. H to the O-V. Now, if you've read this book, we're going to talk about this will make all make sense. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Aarons. Our next guest spent 13 years in the NFL, five of them very memorably with the Philadelphia Eagles. He, of course, helped the team win its first Super Bowl in franchise history. That was back in 2018. He was a first round draft pick. He was a pro bowler. Mm-hmm. And in summary, Cherry, he knows a thing or two about winning. Yes, he does. And in his new memoir, Malcolm Jenkins writes about those wins and the important losses. He sort of opens the curtain, peels mm-hmm. back the layers. And the memoir is deeply personal and is revealing a revealing account of his time on and off the field, including his advocacy work and the public response to it. He joins us now to talk about his book that came out just yesterday. It's called What Winners Won't Tell You, Lessons from a Legendary Defender. Malcolm Jenkins, welcome to Studio Two. And before I let him speak back, I just want to ask you, join the conversation. Yes, you can join. 888-477-9499. Again, 888-477-9499. You can also email Studio Two at whyy.org And thanks to everybody who's been chiming in on Instagram and on Facebook. Malcolm, welcome to Studio yeah, Two. Appreciate you guys having me. How are you doing? We're, We're good. doing good. Congratulations on the book. Thank the you. Thank you. Um, a relief to have it out in the world? Yeah. Nervous yeah. to have it out in the world? You know, as an, as an athlete, one of the scariest things when you retire is you, you wonder how you're going to replace that feeling of, yeah. you know, running out of a tunnel. Uh, and, and playing in front of all these people, <laughs> this is the closest thing I've gotten. <laughs> so I haven't far. been this nervous since probably the Super Bowl. So it's a refreshing feeling but because you definitely realize you're stepping into some new territory. But uh, it's definitely a lot of growth, a, a lot of vulnerability and exposure in this one. Uh, but I definitely enjoyed the process. Can we uh, track back to Piscataway, New Jersey, Yeah, where you grew up, and your grandmother, mm-hmm. Barbara Jenkins? Mm-hmm. She sounds like a character. <laughs> she sounds like she was a huge influence on your life. Yeah. And you tell a story in the book where you were having problems with a neighborhood bully. Mm-hmm. And she told you what? Yeah. You know, I'd, I had uh, ran from the bully earlier in the summer. And so I had another confrontation and figured, all right, here we go again. I'll just cut my losses and go in the house. And trying to, I go to unlock the door and it's locked. And I look up and she's standing there. And she asked me, to, you know, did that boy just spit at you? I'm like, yeah. Before I could finish the sentence, she's sending me back outside. She wouldn't let me in the house until I went and fought this bully. Punch and, him in the face, And go she punch said. him in the face. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> and literally, grandma yeah. said, go punch him in the face. So so when people, you know, that, that story is important. It's like, so people are like, why are you always fighting and defending people? It's like, because this is how I grew up. Right? This is how I was Go raised. out and fight the bully. And so... Um, that's really the ne- like you see that throughout my life, like taking on giants and, and systems and entities that are bigger than me, 
uh, maybe more mature or bigger, but going to, you know, punch that bully in the face. That's really been my mentality towards kind of life because of my, my grandmother. You know, it's not, you know, not even like the men in my life teaching me how to be tough. It's the matriarchy of my family, uh, which is another kind of thread you see throughout the book. And I got to ask you because um, I grew up in a football household and I thought about all the decisions that you have to make that are right in order for you to just, number one, graduate, get to college, and to get to the top of your game and then stay in the game for 13 seasons in the NFL. What do you think is the thread, besides the go beat up those bullies, (laughs) the thread that sort of like kept you on a right path? And and there, because there's so many traps, especially for young black men. Yeah, I think, you know, part of what I showcase or, or try to show is that I didn't make all the right decisions, right? There are points where other people had to kind of be there to be my guardian angels, right? Mm-hmm. Like I have a friend uh, who, you know, I'm this close to being in a gang, and, and if he doesn't intervene and say, no, nah, this is not for you, and literally kind of put space between us, you know, that changes my whole life. Uh, I have coaches that, you know, have at certain points in time when I'm trying to make a decision to go left or right have steered me to the right path. And then I got to the place where, okay, I had enough, you know, know-how to take the <laughs> take the training wheels off and make the decisions for myself. Eventually you have to step into that. But very, very early on, um, I needed help in that. And I think that I, I wrote it that way to showcase that it's not about having our young people try to be perfect. Mm. It's about how do we, you know, give them second chances to grow, because when you allow a person to process and and go through an evolution, you know, you see what the end, you know, can be. And I want people to look at the end of my, you know, the the book and see who I am and and consider me a winner and champion, but not because I made all of the right decisions is because I was given, you know, the opportunity to grow in front of, you know, people in all of these different situations. It's, it's just important for us to keep that that gaze or that, that viewpoint that everybody's a work in progress. Even, you know, my friend, I talk about him in the book. You know, he goes left, you know, in that, that choice, that fork in the road, joins a gang. He's in it and doing all that stuff. But right even now, his purpose is still tied back to that. He works with men and women coming out of incarceration to get jobs. Yeah. And so, you know, in a, in a way, his <laughs> he was exercising his purpose even back then, like deterring people from that life, even though... And his experience in it is what gave him the credibility today to do that. So it's one of these things you have to always, you know, allow for a little bit of grace and second chances because their life is all about an evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So he clearly uh, had that instinct from a young age yeah. to, to, to reroute people who might be making the wrong choice. However, you, um, you're this fear defender. That's what you're going to be known for by, by many people. But you're right in the book that when you were young – um, one of your earlier experiences in football, you were shying away from contact. And when a coach asked you if you wanted to get hit again, you said no. no, no, no. Yeah. I, I was blown away by that because I just always assumed the people who have the ability to overcome that fear of being hit are born with that. You have to be born with that. But no. but you weren't. No, I, I was a very help me understand player. that. Yeah. Even in, you know, my later years, like as a in the prime of my career, I was very conscious that playing this game hurts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when big hits hurt me as well. And and I say a line, you know, in uh the book where eventually I had to learn to, you know, you're you are kind of brainwashing yourself to like run into a brick wall. Like you do have to kind of go through that psychology. 
but I was never one who like enjoyed that and I couldn't even hide it from myself. Mm. So I was like, I'll do the tackling drill, but I'm not going to do it again just because you just riled me up. Now I'm good. I'm going to play this, you know, smart. Um, And then it got to the point where obviously I'm bigger and I'm more confident in my abilities and my body, but I was getting hurt, you know, trying to hurt people. Like, you know, I wanted my hits to like really affect the, the, the offensive person and it hurt me just the same. And so it got to the point where I had to change the way I played. And it was, you know, it wasn't really about the big hits. I'll take them when they come. You know, the, the Brandon Cooks hit, it was just, hey, he's wide open. Mm-hmm. I'll take it. And that but was in the, the Super Bowl. The yeah, the Super Bowl. About, yeah. yeah. But the majority of my tackles began to just be efficient. How do I get this person down? And then I realized I stayed healthier. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I, I go eight seasons straight without missing a game. But how do you, but that, you said you have to brainwash yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To, to basically push through that physical limitation and that fear. Like, what does that process look like? Is it an hour it's, before the game where you get into that space, or is it something you're constantly doing through, like, your whole week leading oh, up yeah, to it's the, the game? Oh, yeah, it's the whole week. Yeah, it's the whole week. You, you're visualizing, you know, you play the game in your mind, you know, a thousand times before you do it. And, and I find that to be the same, you know, coming up with this book. It's like, all right, how do I talk about it? Yeah. Uh, I don't want to just jump in front of a microphone and think I'm going to turn on this game time. <laughs> Let's go. You know, you got to visualize, you know, the – the end goal of what you want and, and see it as as strong as you can. And I learned that under Chip Kelly, like the the strength of your brain and your mind is the same as muscle memory. All right. So muscle memory, we you think that in the NFL we do some like drills that are, you know, crazy advanced. And it's like, no, we do the same exact drills I've been doing since Pop Warner. Mm-hmm. Like you can go to a little league football camp and see the same exact drills that mm-hmm. pro athletes are doing. We do that so much that that in a game, our bodies naturally respond to that now. we've Our brain has created so many shortcuts and neural pathways that we don't even think about that stuff. It's huh. second nature. Well, it's the same thing about, you know, how you prepare for a game. The more vivid you can realize or visualize something, your brain doesn't know the difference between a real experience and just uh, a meditation if you do it in real, if you're detailed enough. So I got to the point where I could play a game five, six times before I ever got there and I was never worried. The last three years of my career, I didn't even worry when I came into the game. It's just more you're playing with your six senses. You're in the game. You're flowing because you've already been there. Um, it's like playing in a simulation. You hear really Tiger is. Woods talk about the same type of thing when yeah. he would play golf. Mm. And I got to say, your mental process, um, you know, it, it, very solid, very consistent. Um, and I, But I want to talk about breaking through limitations mm-hmm. because – um, you're one of the best safeties in in the in the NFL history, right? You wanted to play cornerback, mm-hmm. right? From yeah. the very beginning, was drafted as a cornerback, and people, including Deion Sanders, yeah. aka Coach Prime, said you was going to be a safety. Coaches wanted to put you in a position. Um, you grit your teeth and decided you were going to be what you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then got to a point where you embraced your versatility. What was that process like? sort of breaking out of boxes that people try to consistently put you in and then create your own yeah. space. Yeah, I think we're always stuck in this this conundrum where we've got to play a role, uh, but, you know, the role doesn't define who we are, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of part of being a team. It's, you know, I, got, I wanted to play corner. In my mind, I know I can do this. I know I have a skill set to do this, but the way that this team is arranged, I have to play this specific role, and I have to – you know, I can fight that or I can just embrace my role and play this role to the best of my ability. And I have to f- focus on that. 
And I had to really be patient in that. And I show how frustrating that can be to know that you're bigger. You can do so much more if somebody puts you in the right position to do that. But having to have like, you know, go through the frustrations of failing because, you know, this doesn't fit you. Right. And or then you start to doubt yourself because you're not having the success that you think you can have. Um, But through that patience, once I got to that opportunity where all of a sudden a coach does believe that I have the skill set and they put me in the right spot, I'm flourishing because I was preparing that whole time. I had been, you know, not sitting there kind of feeling bad for myself, but but really interrogating, Okay, how do I how do I make, you know, (laughs) lemonade out of lemons right now? Mm But when I get this opportunity, I'm going to snatch it. And then, you know, and, and it wasn't like that opportunity might be handed to you. I'm waiting for an opportunity that I can snatch. Right? It was times where, you know, I would stay after and go one-on-one with Jordan Matthews, you know, doing one-on-one drills because they wouldn't let me get one-on-ones during practice because I was a safety and he was a receiver. But that those reps are still on tape. <laughs> so yeah. at some point when y'all are evaluating the film, you're still going to see this rep whether you like it or not. Um, so you can never say that the skill is not there. And if I have to go do these extra things just so you can see, you know, that part of me, then, you know, so be it. Because I know that's where I need to get to. And quick follow up, because in the book you write, I had begun to believe how I was the best, how nobody had the gifts I had, the intelligence, the long arms, the speed, the physicality and the ability to play multiple positions in a game. And I started to embrace it. What changed for your game, for your life once you started having that belief? I stopped listening to myself. <laughs> I had to change the way I talked to myself first. And the 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 thing that helped me with that is I had two people really um that were very consistent like hype men in my life. So when I was with the Saints, I really only had them for the last year I was with the Saints in that first stint. Um as a rookie coach, uh we called him Crime Dog. His name is Wesley McGriff. He came out of college. But he used to tell me all the time, you know, you're the best safety in the league. And this was literally the year after I was rated the worst safety in the NFL. <laughs> so, I, so I'm like, bro, what are you talking about? Like, uh, I'm calling bullshit. Like, come on, bro. And, uh, but he kept saying it every day. He's like, you know, okay, tell me why you're not. Like, you're smarter than everybody. You know the whole defense. You can play multiple positions. You're a corner. You can run. You're long. You're strong. You can tackle. You tell me what's why not. And – after a while, I realized I didn't have a good answer. And then I got here, and Chris Marigos, uh safety special teams player, captain, before every game, unprovoked, would just, like, come up to me, look me in my eye, and say, like, you're the best safety in this league. Like, you have to show everybody. And the same thing. At first, I'm like, like okay, I, I appreciate it. But he's like, I watch how you work. I watch mm-hmm. what, the process you go through. I watch what you do every day. You're the best safety in the league. Like, go play it. And And having that, you know, eventually you start to believe it. And then once you focus your brain, like, only on that, you block out all of the doubt. I used to watch my own highlights right before because I wanted to remind myself of who I was. You need that that process, you know, to go perform. We're coming up on a break, but you also mentioned, I'll just mention this really briefly, that you also had, like, a little shortcut to get yourself back on track during the game. You would knock twice on your own helmet. I want to talk about that when we come back from from our break. But it does seem like a lot of this was a mental process for you as much as it was about developing yourself. Yeah, physically. Um, So we're talking with Malcolm Jenkins. New book out. It is called What Winners Won't Tell You Lessons from a Legendary Defender. We've got a lot more coming, including your questions. Don't worry. We're going to get to them. We just have a lot of our own. Sherry (laughs) Sherry and I, uh, you are listening to Studio Two on WHYY 90.9. Stick with us.
This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. And if you are just joining us, we're speaking with Malcolm Jenkins, a Philly favorite. He's a two-time Super Bowl champion, entrepreneur, and the author of a brand new memoir titled What Winners Won't Tell You, Life Lessons from a Legendary Defender. So uh, I want to fast forward to... Um, Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. taking a knee during the national anthem, which many people remember, which led to several other protests, including your own during the national anthem. Um, and you have this really powerful scene in the book where basically you have gathered the entire team together to talk about what you might do during the anthem. And you make your case in of the 53 people in the room, players, all but three walk out. And I want to say their names, by the way, Stephen Means and Ron Brooks, who, um, you know, many fans won't remember, right. to, to be frank. Um, what emotionally, what was that like to watch the 50 other men walk out of the room? Um, I mean, it was, it, it's one of those that at first you, you kind of realize that we create kind of these dream worlds, you know, that we live in, these bubbles, right? We break down huddles on family and, it's, you know, all for one kind of thing for the team. But <clears throat> that's kind of one of those moments where you realize that, like, sport uh, doesn't necessarily reflect real life all the mm-hmm. time. Like, you know, that these things or some things are bigger than sports. Um, and, and it, you know, because it's 53 players, it's not like it's just all the white players. <laughs> like walked Absolutely. Out. Yeah. The first people who walked out of the room were, were some black players, right? And then you whittle that down so – it kind of, but it also showed me the stakes, right? Like, you know, not everybody is willing to risk, you know, their livelihood. What's going on? Not, not everybody cares. Uh, not everybody feels um, interested enough or educated enough to get into it. So, um, you know, that changed to one of the things that I learned though through pledging uh, in my fraternity is this one saying they talk about um, eight members or eight men thoroughly immersed in the true Omega spirit are far greater asset than 80 with lukewarm enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you find out like, you know what, I would rather go into battle with a small group who I know are dedicated to the cause than to go out here with guys who are lukewarm that are going to flake as soon as we face some opposition because we're going to face opposition. Yeah. yeah. yeah and, and you Colin Kaepernick had been a part of this coalition mm-hmm. for a while. He, was no longer you saw other people as the players coalition was in negotiations mm-hmm. break off and you're standing with a small group of dedicated people and you executed a deal what were you most proud of with the players coalition which was formed while you were here in philly by yeah. the way and and i gotta shout you out to say you were you didn't just you did the work you went to the community you spoke to the people you did all this what were you most proud of yeah that you know, that chapter is, is called Poise because, you know, at the highest, you know, moment in a game, you know, when the crowd is, is feeling the pressure as, a, as an athlete, you have to focus on just the task and kind of ignore all those things. And I was proud that we were able to hold in that moment our poise collectively and focus specifically on the work. Because what started as just 12 players has now grown into an organization that we serve as an umbrella to 12 other sports leagues mm-hmm. <laughs> that have activated their own athletes and created their own subsidiaries of the Players Coalition. And so the work that, that we were doing has grown exponentially um, because we stayed dedicated in that, that moment. You know, the NBA even 
they kind of molded their deal that they did with their players in 2020 um, when those things were breaking out off of the deal that we did with the NFL. So it's 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 you start to see how that one domino you know affects the larger narrative of of history really, yeah. and to be a part of that is special. And that money kind of went. Oh, yeah. brought money together to give and oh, yeah. to help other organizations. It was real money, yeah. I mean, if you look at what the NFL is doing now just in ad dollars alone in messaging, but we secured almost, or the deal was for um, a little under $89 million that yeah. was going to multiple organizations. It yeah. created the Players Coalition that we pushed that money out to and we controlled, which was important. But there was a fracturing among the players who had yeah. originally taken a stand, and you don't shy away from this in the book. No. But it still seems like you don't quite know why um, Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, and some of the other players decided to splinter off from the coalition. Because it wasn't like their feelings on this issue had changed. They were clearly still committed mm-hmm. to right. racial justice. Um, do you think even now you have any clarity about why you know, parts of the coalition held, but not all of it? Well, I think they're, you know, it's always, so I talk about it actually, and I think a good way to understand it uh, was in New Orleans. I remember there was a lot of like gun violence and I got asked to join this organization called Solutions Not Shootings. Mm -hmm. They were a new organization that was, you know, there to eradicate gun violence and they had a town hall kind of community event and I attended. And what they were doing was the city was giving out grants to organizations to help this and this organization and I was with was in front line to get a grant well you had a whole the whole community event was all of these organizations that have been around for decades by you know community members grassroots who were mad and upset and you realize that like okay everybody's in here to do the same thing to stop the gun violence but when you're in a position where you have a difference in ideology there's a different there's a need for resources that are small and everybody's you know, trying to get the credit for their thing, yeah. that it becomes dysfunctional. And I think that's a little bit of what, you know, what was happening. Yeah. And I want to get in a couple of these. And, rapid fire and, here. Um, <laughs> rapid fire from Ken on Facebook. Which of the two Super Bowl wins were more satisfying, the Saints 2010 season or the Eagles 2017 season? Yeah, they were the first, both were the first for each city. So I think the city's experience was probably uh, equally. But for me, I think the second uh, in Philly was because I was a captain on that team. Yeah. There was a lot of drama, even personally. Like, you'll see in my life, there was a ton of things going on at that time. Yeah. You'll see that in the book. Another question, Josh from IG says, do you see yourself running for office? Not at all. And I got to wow. jam this in because we only got a couple minutes. But <laughs> a lot of people who leave leave football after playing for their entire lives have a real struggle. I mean, Tom Brady, who wrote your forward, struggled. Mm-hmm. Colin Kaepernick struggling mm-hmm. you know what i'm saying letting it go how are you doing uh it's still a struggle you know it's yeah. even and i have enough things where i feel like i've obviously got a book i've got businesses and if i didn't have that i would be really bad because mm-hmm. you're dealing with an identity change everything is new but you know i lean into some of that fear and and the unknown is where you get to rewrite or you know start over and make a new so i try to every day enjoy that part but it is nerve-wracking and it's an identity crisis at an odd time mm-hmm. in your life you're 35 i'm, I'm right. 35 like yeah. and i feel like you've been through so much more life than me and it's just sort of an it's unusual for athletes you have to shift the way you think about yourself at a time when most people 
are on a continuum already. Mm-hmm. It's so weird. I just want to get one more question in because you, uh, we have a minute left. Question from Tara. Will you continue to stay close to football through broadcasting or coaching? Because you, you do talk about how the broadcasting stinks in this book. <laughs> but, but do you think you would do that? You know what? I like storytelling. Uh, yeah. And I tried broadcasting, and too much of that is not storytelling. It's personality. Yeah. And um, so I like, you'll see in the book, I like the cerebral parts of football. So there is coaching, but coaches put in so much time. And so right now my life is not built to do it. I'm focused more on my girls and, and teaching people through different ways. So if it's storytelling, if it's art, if it's, uh, you know, film, I think I'll try my creative uh, bag first before I dive back into the matrix. So if exactly. So your book, you have no shirt on showing the brand. Yeah. yeah you very know, my, revealing. Yeah, it's a vulnerable, you know, the pads are off. It's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a metaphor. This is where I'm at in life. If yeah. you were to give somebody the one thing you think kept you in the winner's circle from the time Pop Warner, high school, college, NFL, what would be that one thing? Uh, well, I would say don't expect to be in the winner's circle and all those things because mm. I wasn't. And I think that's what you'll see in this, that winning is a journey and an evolution. Don't cheat the process. Yep. Uh, fantastic words to end on. For Malcolm Jenkins, uh, Eagles legend, Saints legend. Well, we should, yeah, we should mention. Multiple Saints legend. legend. I got a from New Orleans, too. <laughs> Uh, the new book is called uh, What Winners Won't Tell You, Lessons from a Legendary Defender. And there are many twists and turns in the book we mm-hmm. did not get to, into, so please pick it up. Malcolm Worth Jenkins, thank you I for joining it. us on Studio 2. Thank you so much. And we're closing with Grateful Dead's Bertha, which you reportedly played at training camp, right? <laughs> yes, I did. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining <laughs> us on Studio 2 today, Malcolm. And that will wrap our show. Today's edition of Studio 2 was produced by Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. And you can find more of the show wherever you get your podcasts from Studio 2 at WHYY in Philly. I'm Cherry Gregg. My name is Avi Wolfman-Arendt, and we'll see you tomorrow. 